Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning, everybody. This is Alex Dolan. You're listening to Thrill Seekers Radio. We are part of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And today we're having a special session on editing. So anyone who listens to this, uh, whether you're just an avid reader or if you're a writer, you know that editing is a crucial part of delivering a great book. And so I really wanted to bring somebody on board who is an active editor and could speak to that. And he's also a writer. And... Um, somebody that I've worked with personally and a fantastic editor. And I wanted to welcome uh, Derek McFadden to the show. Yay. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show. Derek comes from the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Um, That is correct. Yeah. And uh, yes. Very rainy here. Is it actually rainy right now? Super rainy. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay, we've, we, you know, down in, so I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we've had unseasonably late rain ourselves, so, like, it's, it's going to be raining next week, which is really unusual for California. It's going to be raining all week, um, and I was just in Portland, and they have over an inch more this month than they're used to having for all of April, so they are super rainy as well. Yeah. Meanwhile, everyone yeah. who's listening from the East Coast is like, yeah, it's been... It's like, what are we talking about yeah, here? Where's like the editing part? Yeah, it's snowing out here, so, so stop <laughs> complaining. Um, so for how, how long have you been functioning as an editor? That's a tough question. I, um, my entire life would be the first answer. Right. Um, but because I've just always had that gene of like, I need to edit stuff. Um, I need to write stuff, but I also need to edit stuff. And it's nice to be an editor because that keeps me from over editing my own stuff. If I can edit other people's stuff, it kind of gets me in the groove of editing other people's stuff and not having to edit my own. Um, I've been working as a, you know, as a freelance editor with an agent also for about two years. So officially for about two years, but my whole life. So you are all right. So, so for the past two years, so your whole life you've you've honed your skill, and then yeah. you you you're working for really one of the top literary agencies in in the country right now for two years. And that's Sandra Dykstra, and they're a wonderful agency. Um, and it's just it's just wonderful people that work there, and they really care about about authors and about good books getting out. So yeah, yeah, I love I love what I do. And what, you know, for people out there that, you know, I, I, 
worked for a literary agency for a couple of years myself, and I and I always get the question of like, well, how did you luck into that job? And, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess for you, like, what was the, how did you find out about the job? How, how did you get the gig? I super lucked into it. Um, so I'm I'm also a writer who is looking for representation. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but. Uh, also in my house, my dad is a writer too. And, uh, he, uh, got representation through that agency and through an agent that you and I both know. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, so at one point he wanted me to meet with her or with the two of them, because I, I think he just wanted us to both see how it worked because he had never really met with an agent before. And so he was like, let's do it. Let's you and me both meet with her. I was like, okay. And, uh, I remember having dinner with her and my dad gets up and goes to the bathroom. And I said, you know, you can still pass on him if you want. And she laughed and said, no, that's okay. He's good. <laughs> um, and then she had emailed my dad and said, I need a reader. I need a second reader. And my dad was like, how about Derek? And she said, that sounds great. Cause her and I had talked about books and books that I liked and books that I didn't like and why I liked them or why I didn't. And I think our sensibilities meshed and they have ever since. And that's kind of how I lucked into the job. Let's talk about your approach to editing. So when you're working on mm -hmm. a manuscript, um, I, have you outlined a methodology for how you approach the work at this point? My first thing that I will do, um, because if I'm, if I'm editing, I have, I have two functions. Uh, I will, I will edit or I will be a reader to determine if a book is good enough to consider representation. So if I'm editing, and especially if it's an author that we work with specifically, then my uh, methodology is always start with grammatical notes and any notes that, that you feel like need to be made. What I do to edit is I will put the, I put it all in, in word and then I will take that word file and put it in pages, which is Apple's version of word. Huh. And pages, pages reads to me. Um, I'm, I'm also legally blind. <laughs> so <laughs> it really helps to have somebody read to me. So as I am very close to the screen, looking at what I'm reading, I can hear and also see um, mistakes that are made and like, like grammatical issues. Yeah. And if I see those, I won't make a change on the actual document unless the author says do that. I will make a note that either says, you know, either puts a comma in, in the little comment uh, section or says no comma if there doesn't need to be one or, you know, I, I, I mean, I will ask them to be more clear um, and like rewrite for clarity uh, if something doesn't come across correctly. If that makes sense. 
it and does. that's how I start. Okay. Um, and then it depends on how the author, um, how they, how they respond to my edits. Usually they love them, but sometimes people are like, could you not give so many notes? And then I'll be like, okay, I'll give a little fewer. I mean, I'll give fewer notes, but it's hard because I'm a grammarian and I want to make sure that grammatically everything that comes out is good. So it's hard for me to not give as many notes as I probably want to, but I'll try. So you have the, the probably the unusual experience for an editor of being able to both uh, read the, you know, actually read the, the manuscript on the page, but also hear it. Do you feel yes. like the audio gives you something different? I mean, I know that, that there's, I mean, do you do it to be, to be as, be able to experience it? Yeah. Not I, everyone I think, this, but. I think that's why authors will read their stuff aloud okay. or have it read aloud to them because reading aloud is very, it's, it's a very different experience than seeing it on a page when you've seen it for the last three or four years and you're like, yeah, that's perfect. I'm an author. I know that this is perfect. But if you have it read back to you, it will change your perception. And that's why I love doing it. I have known a lot of people that have had the same thing. I've, I've tried it too. And sometimes does it not work for you? Sometimes I feel like it does. And sometimes I feel like it doesn't because the, there are people that I know that are actors by nature and they could take Mm -hmm. a piece of stale writing and make it sound awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there, so there are people that I know that do that. There's a, a writer that I know in Maine who happens to be a good writer, but he also is one of the best readers and just, he can do, he's done poetry readings where he's read someone's bad poem and, um, which, which is, and like, made it sound good, but it made it sound really entertaining. <laughs> but, and, but yeah. And so I, I don't know, like the way this is sort of a, an open debate because I, I right. see the the value of that if it brings other things to mind. But I also think well, that, like when I when I think of somebody experiencing a book, they are doing it with putting their own voices in their head, and I, in a way, like, I kind of wonder if like I throw my own voice to it. It's if it's not really the character that if it's if I'm not giving it the right intent because I'm not an actor. Well, the nice thing about using pages is that um, it does not offer tone. Right. It will offer it will offer breaths where it thinks that the that the writer wants breaths. So sometimes I will hear them not take a breath where there should be a comma, and I'll be like, "Oh, there needs to be a comma there," or take too many breaths and be like, "Well, they have commas all over the place right now," and I wouldn't necessarily. Um, catch everything if I didn't have pages on. Um, I can go down the page with my eyes lacking as they are and catch as much as I can. But with pages, part of what's so good about it is not having a tone, not having an actor there. Yeah. Just having the, it's very bland, but it really shows you if, if a bland read can make a book sound good, it's probably okay. Yeah. I would agree with that. So, yeah. So when we were setting this up, we were talking about 
as an editor, what your top pet peeves for, for writers would be with the hope of, for those listening who are writers, of, of correcting what might be common, um, common mistakes, right. bad habits. So I have five uh, pet peeves uh, as an editor, and then one as an ed- or as a as an author for editors. Like this is a pet peeve to me when I work with editors. So I'll start <clears throat> with with our uh, pet peeves here: overuse of certain words such as that, just, so, or had. Those words specifically get overused so much, and if you think about it in the language. If you can make something clear and do it with brevity and not use one of those words when you just don't need to, like that gets overused a lot. Um, had is the second one that I think gets overused. Just is one that I'm just noticing gets overused a lot. And so um, is a very British word. A lot of, uh, I, I noticed a lot of British authors will start with, so then this happened, or so, and it's like, so begins the sentence, but doesn't need to, um, if that makes sense. That, that is, in fact, a bad habit of mine. And I, there's somebody <laughs> I worked for at one point that I think would describe things like that as, as throat clearing. Yes, that's <laughs> what it is. Yeah. It's like saying, uh, it's like being in, in actual speaking and saying, uh, cause you're not, you're trying to think about what you're going to say next. And that's right. sort of what the, what those words serve to do. <clears throat> um, and then, uh, the second one, some authors aren't ready for agents or editors yet. Those to whom their work is still too precious to withstand a collaborate, um, to withstand a collaboration should continue to draft on their own for a while or seek a critique group. Um, sometimes I'll get books in that aren't for editing their, um, what, what they want is representation. And I will notice that they're just not ready yet. It's not bad writing. It's just not where it needs to be. So what I, it's not really a pet peeve, but what I would say is if you think you're ready and you haven't been to a critique group, um, get to a critique group, even if it's just online. My critique group that I uh, worked with was online for my book, and it really helped. Number three is shifting points of view. It's fine if you want to have a book with two or more points of view, as long as the point of view shift is organic and each voice has its own timber. But when point of view shifts cause the reader to go, huh? They will also cause the reader to put the book down mm-hmm. to the author. This is death. So be clear and confident of your points of view. And I think that's really hard um, for, for first time authors, especially um, because here's the thing in first person, first person is a great point of view, but it only allows you to be in first person in that person's point of view, unless you've decided the whole book's going to be first person and it'll work to have all these points of view and different voices in first person. But that very rarely happens. If that makes sense. It does. Yeah. And that, it's strange too, because there are, I have heard 
at least one person from from uh, uh, from the publishing industry say there's just there's people are just buying a lot more stuff in first person, and so I think there's a yeah, t- I think that's true. And I think to some degree, we all sort of learn to write in first person before anything else. So, you know, there's, there's that sense, but it does there, you know, there's the acknowledgement that if you're going to choose first person, that no, right. uh, no, it's going to limit you. Like, you don't, like, yeah. you don't necessarily see what's lurking around the corners. There may be blind spots for you if you were only seeing it through the lens of one character. Well, and the other thing is if I'm reading a book and I'm considering representation, and the book is in first person and then quickly switches for like two pages to third and then goes back to first. What I say is, oh, that person had a hole they had to plug and didn't know how to do it in first person. Mm -hmm. So they made a weird switch that just doesn't work when your reader is thinking first person, first person, what the heck's happening here, right? Because immediately it changes and then that's just, it's crazy for for a reader. Um, Dialogue that is pure exposition. You remember how I was in the hospital after my heart attack that I suffered on July 4th of last year? No one talks like this. No one wants to read this. Except for Hermione Granger. Okay. Okay. I, I give you, I give you that. And I guess if you can make $700 million uh, as an author, we'll let you do what you want. JK Rowling. We will let you do what you want. I, I think there's always like, like, I mean, I think that's sort of like a, the cheat around it is like you have, you know, the professor on Gilligan's Island or you have like the brainy character. Who, yes. That's your, your avenue through which you can deliver exposition. Um, that's exactly what the cheat is. Yeah, but I've read things like that where it's like a first date and the characters have to get to know each other, but rather than, uh, you know, showing us that they're getting to know each other, um, you, you just have them tell everything about themselves. It's an info dump and it just doesn't work. The, the reader will be like, this is not how anybody speaks. Yeah. So I can't buy this character. And that's also death for, for, a, for an author. Yes. Yeah, that's not great. Uh, let's see. Um, number five, I believe on number five. I wasn't numbering these, but they are numbered on my sheet. Well, those that are simply... The people that are recording oh. this at home and taking notes, this is, this is point yeah. five. Yeah. Point five. Books that are simply too long. As an editor who works primarily with an agent... If a book is too long, it indicates pacing problems, usually a saggy middle. Before you show any agent your saggy middle, get your book on Weight Watchers. It's just, it needs to happen. Uh, when uh, there, was one, there was one manuscript that we got, and I won't name names because I don't even remember the name of the person, uh, but basically it was a baseball book and myself and the agent that I work with love baseball books if, if they work. And so she sends me this and I'm all excited. And then I notice that it's just, it seems very long. I, I look at the page count and it seems very long. So then I looked at the word count, 210,000 words. That puts you over 800 pages mm-hmm. and is too long. 
uh, especially for a first novel, but for anybody. It's just too long. So uh, make sure that your books are tight and uh, taut and ready and not too long. No saggy middles. We want pacing to, especially if you're writing thrillers, don't write a thriller that's boring at the beginning because people will put it down. Well, and I'll add, as somebody who, who read a lot for a few years at, a, at another literary agency, there are, um, there are people that, that will just want to write. They just have a lot in them and they want to put it out there. Yeah. And they're and it, yeah. it kind of reminds me of uh, of two things. The first thing it reminds me of is there's this old Calvin and Hobbes comic strip where they, he wants to build the world's largest snowman, and so uh-huh. he, he and Calvin and Hobbes roll around a giant ball in the snow in the snow until <laughs> it's the biggest thing they've ever seen. And uh, and Calvin says, "Okay, that's one of the toes." <laughs> that's one of the toes. <laughs> and I, you know, there like there are people that would turn in four hundred page manuscripts and then say, "Oh, and this is part of a six part series." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the other when, thing, when, when, yeah, oh, when you haven't sold one book yet, <laughs> right, right? So the uh, like, and, huh? yeah, and if you are looking to be a first time published novelist, I, I, you know, I can't speak for Derek's. Uh, experience, but for for my experience at the agency, I know it was a harder sell as you got into longer word counts. Things that were over twenty thousand yeah. were much harder to sell as first time novelists. The thing that that um, the agent that we work with tells me is if it's a first time book, um, you know, dep- it depends on the genre, but really you don't want to be over a hundred thousand words. Yeah, yeah. Um, eighty to one hundred is is solid. Um, and if you're a little bit over a hundred, we can probably work on pacing. There's probably some pacing stuff. Um, but more than that is, is going to get into iffy territory. So the, the other thing that this reminds me of is, um, there's a book that you might've read, but the, some folks that are listening may not have, but if you're interested in the editorial process at all, there is a famous editor named uh, Max Perkins and he, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Did Ernest Hemingway and and Fitzgerald and Thomas Thomas Wolf. Wolf. Yeah. And um, there's a great book on him called um, Max Perkins, Editor of Genius, which I highly, highly recommend. Um, and they talk about, among other things, his work with Thomas Wolf, who uh, literally, if you can Google this and, and see the images, but at one point, for one of his novels, brought in boxes and boxes that stacked up higher than than uh you know than you would a standing person would be um and he i can't i can't remember what the actual output of this thing was but perkins basically had to sift through all of this stuff to get to the final novel um you know maybe one hundredth of what you know he actually had had given him i i think the thing is that the publishing industry has changed so much that uh there are no Max Perkins. Left. No, there aren't. I wish there were. I wish yeah. there were. So, uh, and I, I think that's the thing. I, I, I'm finding that on the publishing side, that editors pretty much pretty much want a book to be ready to go, and they want a book they can slap covers on. Yeah, and right. be like, "This is sellable now, and we're good." Right. Uh, that's what they want. Um, and so the yeah. So for. Uh, and and by the way, as a as a quick footnote, we've been very cagey about the the uh, 
the the agent that we, that we both work work with, and it's no, it's for no other reason than I, I didn't officially get her permission. Yeah, I'm not so, trying. I'm not trying to name names. That's that's yeah, why I'm so not saying anything. To if you're listening, <laughs> we're not we're not trying to snub you by not mentioning you. Uh, the agency is the Sondra Dykstra Literary Agency. It's a wonderful agency, but um, we're not we're not. We're not I just don't want to name her. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right. So then you have one. Yeah. So let me let me get back to. I have one. That's four editors, <clears throat> and. Okay, here we go. As an author, here is a peeve I have about editors. To me, editing is collaborative. My brother is an actor, and one of the things he taught me was how the theater is collaborative. So too is writing when you're writing for eventual publication. Unless you're an absolute genius, you're gonna need help. As an author, you write what you know, but as you write the story that comes from that knowledge, you're likely to run up against something that you don't know. I've had editors who were more than willing to share experiences that differed from my own. If that sharing, if that sharing, um, if that sharing made my writing more real. And I've had editors who, when at a crossroads like that, said to me, I'm not here to write your book for you. That's true, you're not. If you were, you would have written it. You are, however, here to help. So that's my pet peeve for, as an author for editors. Um, if we come to you and we need you to edit, and there's parts where we're like, I'm not clear on, on this, but you might have a better uh, perspective, it's okay to offer that, and then I can take what you say, and as a writer, write a better scene from it, if that makes sense. I think it makes, makes total sense, and and I usually explain to other writers that a lot, I think there's this myth that writing is the solitary act, but if you think about, you know, any, any other medium, um, and I, I won't speak as much to the visual arts, but, um, right. but I'd say, uh, film and, and music, like if you were, I, I was a musician too. And like when I would record an album, you would collaborate with the people that you're playing with. You'd collaborate with the engineer. You would have like, if sometimes you have somebody who's more of a producer who's, who's in there, who's, and they come with ideas on how to take the basics of the song and make it better. Um, yeah. And that, and so for a film, like you think about a director will go out and just shoot the hell out of a scene and just shoot and shoot and shoot. And then the editor kind of comes in for the cleanup and finds the, the right performances and finds the best of the best, the best and pacing puts the movie out together. Yeah. Right. And it, it, everything is this collaborative process that is not, it may adhere to one main vision of what that story is supposed to be, but it's, I know, or what that, that piece of artwork is supposed to be. But the the collaborate, you know, if you embrace the collaboration and invite those ideas in, I think you'll have a better work. Those are you're not necessarily cheating by letting somebody else be part of the process. What you're doing is you're, you're it's like you're hiring a coach or working with a coach right. to make yourself better. And I think that because so many writers, before they come for agents, they are writing in a very solitary environment. Right it's hard for them to get out of that when they have to be collaborative sometimes. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. 
it's, yeah. it's interesting that, that, that happens. Um, because like Spielberg, like you were saying about film, Spielberg made ready player one, which as we're recording, this just came out like a couple of weeks ago and I watched it. It was awesome. Um, but I'm sure he had a, I'm sure he had a vision for it, but even that probably didn't turn out exactly as he expected it to. Yeah. Cause stuff happens on set or in the writing that changes the eventual product. Which is, is actually part of the magic of it. And that's, and yeah. And sometimes uh, it'll be that, you know, a line delivery or whatever, or sometimes for me, like I am very dialogue heavy in my writing. I love dialogue. I kind of don't care about um, descriptive stuff because I am legally blind. So the way I see things is going to be different than the way some readers see things. And I don't want a reader to be reading my book and be like, that's not how I see it. And then they'd be out of the book, if that makes sense. Yes. So I tend to be very, I I have a bunch of dialogue more than, more than description. Uh, One of the things, so, so two nights, so you're, you're ready player one. So I haven't seen that yet, but I hear it's really good. Um, It's pretty good. Yeah. But last night I was, um, (laughs) I was putting something on the background and I put on seven, David Fincher's seven. It happened to be on Netflix. I haven't seen it in a long, long time. And I saw it again. And, um, it's a you know it's funny because I remember thinking it's very in the '90s when it came out. I remember seeing it and thinking that it was very gritty and like I just picked up on you know it hits you over the head. And yeah, like there's, it's not a very subtle movie, and yet watching it this time, I was noticing some of the choices that the actors were making, the performances, and one of them. I was getting to see all the things that Morgan Freeman chose to do with his character. So you get to know who he might have been before he became the, the kind oh. of wise older man. And, and yeah. just one example, like there's one scene where he's practicing throwing a knife at a dartboard and that, that like, that's, you know, that's a fairly obvious one. But one that was a little bit more subtle is there's a scene where Morgan Freeman is coming over to dinner at uh, Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow's apartment. And they're just having, they're talking, but one of the things he's doing with his napkin absentmindedly is he's rolling his napkin and he's looping it over his knuckles as if it were a boxing tape. Oh, and, interesting. And I, and I was like, I hadn't noticed that the first time. And I don't, I, I doubt that would be something that would have been written in the, I mean, Fincher might've come up with it but Morgan Freeman might have just as equally come up with it, but somebody came up with that. That probably wasn't in the original screenplay. And that was, and it stayed because Fincher liked it. Right. Um, yeah. Like the, the interesting thing I, when I was in high school, I was, I had a great English teacher who would read everything to us. So we'd have to read it. But also <laughs> he, the first thing he said was film is literature because before it's a film, it's a script and nothing is on that screen that a director doesn't want. Yeah. So yeah. And it changed the way I watch film. It changed the way that I saw movies because I could, I could see the bad movies because I could be like, 
oh, that director doesn't know what they're doing. Cause you know, <laughs> or, oh, that's why he did that. And that's what makes it a good movie. Do you ever watch intentionally, like intentionally watch movies, you know, are going to be bad. So you can do that. Birdemic shock and tear. Birdemic <laughs> shock and tear. Oh my gosh. That movie is terrible, but it's terribly awesome. How it is the worst. I've never even heard of it. Where, where is it available? You can, uh, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, you can, it's, it's, um, you know, Amazon video has it. Um, it's probably really cheap on DVD if you want to have it and just be like, just anytime that I feel like <laughs> watching a weird movie here, this is, um, the guy who made it spent $10,000 of his own money. He was a Silicon Valley guy and he spent $10,000 of his own money and he, he got this thing made, but he, he didn't really care all that much about how it seemed or how it felt. So when people are not speaking, there is no ambient sound. None. <laughs> They're just, he didn't pay for ambient sound. So people are walking, you don't hear anything. There's nothing. The birds that are birdemic, that are attacking this town, they are clip art. They are clip art. It is amazing. At one point, there's a news story, and it's talking about, because what it really is, is he, he's a disciple of Al Gore and an inconvenient truth, and he really wants to hammer that to you over the head. Mm. <clears throat> so at one point, there's like a forest fire or something on the news. The news anchor has a thing over his shoulder that's showing the forest fire, and it says that it's a Getty image. It says Getty images on it. <laughs> they hadn't gotten the watermark out. Because <laughs> he didn't, because he'd have to pay them. And he didn't want to pay them. That would just be too much. <laughs> so would you say this is, where, where does this rank in terms of, say, a Sharknado? Oh, I think it's better than Sharknado. I've seen Sharknado, okay. and I think this is better. At one point, there is a point where people are, 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 being, uh, uh, are, are trying to run away. And this couple finds this brother and sister under a car. And the little girl says, can we have something to eat? We've been under the car a long time, <laughs> which is an amazing, I mean, I'm sure they had. Good point. Terrible dialogue. Uh, there's this one series that came out, and I won't mention it by name just because, in general, I try not to crap on things on this show. And the movies that we're crapping on, I think almost were made to be crapped on. So I don't feel that bad. I mean, yeah, I'm not, yeah. That <laughs> this guy, yeah. Is like a legitimate series that's on now. And what, uh, what grinds my gears about it is that uh, it's based <laughs> on one of my favorite thrillers of all time. And, and it is a brilliant oh. book. Um, but I, I just don't, I don't want to like trash talk. Yeah, you like. But you might be able to guess what I'm talking about. But it is, I tried to watch it. I got like one and a half episodes in, and it was, it's just horrible. And I, I couldn't identify, that's, I mean, this is the example of, I bring this up because this speaks to the collaborative process that we're talking about in writing and creating any piece of, of creative art. Where I can't say for certain that the actors weren't doing their jobs or <laughs> right. the wrong performance. 
I mean, the script is based on source material that is like one of the most beloved thriller books of all times, uh, of all time. And um, the the mood, the cinematography is well done, and yet the whole sum of its parts is unwatchable. <laughs> and and I really like. I think that clearly speaks to because I can't. I mean, I think ultimately that falls on the director as kind of the, the the mastermind behind it all. That they didn't pick either direct the right performances, or they didn't pick the right kind of editing, the right edits, or yeah. But it, it is just it came together. It tells you like how it's not like one person being a horrible casting choice for the character or the writing being bad. It's like the whole sum of that collaboration just fell flat. Well, and the best part of a thing like that is when it goes on DVD because there's special features and there's commentary and the people will usually say something like, we love this and we did such a great job at this. And you're sitting there going, "Uh uh-huh. That's why I spent $8 and I'm watching your commentary right now. That's why it was in the bargain bin at Walmart. Right. And so, and so the reason that we're trash talking right now is just right. because we're talking about the editorial process and how if you're a writer, you should really embrace it because the, the, collab, the gift of collaboration that you get from somebody who knows the vision that you're trying to achieve and knows how to make it, make it get there faster um, I think is the real, the real importance of this. Yeah. That, and I lo- like, I love editing, uh, people's work and making it better. I know that when it comes to me and I'm editing, it's as good as they can get it for that point in time. But I know that I can make it better. I have the confidence in that, that I can, I can make it better. And it's even more helpful. Uh, you and I do this often. If we have notes going back and forth, and together we can make it better. That makes for a great book, I think. I agree. Um, we're winding down. I want to let everybody know that you've been listening to Thrill Seekers Radio. We are part of Authors on the Air, and this is a trademark copyrighted podcast solely owned by Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network, LLC. Um, you can listen to this episode on editing with Derek McFadden, um, plus all the other episodes of Thrill Seekers at alexdolan.com. That's www.alexdolan.com. Um, Derek, if people wanted to find out more about you, where should they go? Um, my blog is at my name. It's derekmcfadden.com. Um, and then I have Twitter. It's dwrites98053. Okay. So those, okay, those are the places to reach me. Well, thank you so much for joining. And actually, I think I'm going to uh, probably, I, I hope this is a value. If you are uh, listening to this and, and find this is a value, uh, please shoot me an email. Let me know. And let me know if you have other questions of editors. I might be having, bringing on more folks to talk about this part because it's, it's, an, it's an often overlooked but really important part of the craft. Um, so, Derek, thanks for joining us. And thanks for having me. Yeah, okay.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.